All right, if you would, be turning in your Bibles to Micah chapter 3. Uh, if you remember, we're doing a whole chapter at a time, so we can't plumb the full depths. But while you are turning there, let me give you the key truth that I want us to walk away with this morning. God's judgment calls the leaders chosen to serve his people to account according to his justice and love. Let me say that again. God's judgment calls the leaders chosen to serve his people to account according to his justice and love. All right, if you would give your attention to the reading of God's word, this is Micah chapter 3. And I said, hear you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice, you who hate the good and love the evil? who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. Then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil." Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. Therefore, it shall be night to you without vision and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced and the diviners put to shame. They shall cover their lips for there is no answer from God. But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity, Its heads give judgment for a bribe, its priests teach for a price, its prophets practice divination for money, yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, let me ask you a question about leaders, and this is an important question. What do you respect most in a leader? Is it someone who can get something done at any and all cost, regardless of character? Is that okay? Does the character of the leader matter at all? Well, I would argue that it does, and in particular, if it is someone who is called by God to serve as a servant of his name, his glory, for his people's good, then you better believe it matters. And what does it mean to actually be successful? What is the measure? Now, don't get me wrong here. I don't want someone who can't get anything done and clogs up the system and, is, and doesn't know how to make a decision and is not wise and doesn't know what they're doing. No, I don't want that any more than you do. However, too often we have elevated competency and accomplishment by the world's standards 
over what the Lord would say is successful. Let me ask you. If I were to say, hey, uh, we're thinking about hiring somebody, and listen, this guy's got 40 years of experience. Attractive so far, yes? Because we could, you know, we always use a little wisdom around here. However, uh, in that 40 years, um, he's never actually gotten anybody to listen to him. I, he's probably a terrible preacher on, uh, based on that, right? Like he's never been able to gather a crowd except to make a group of people angry so they would beat him up and chuck him into a well. He had one friend, it was a minority from Africa, uh, that, that actually listened to him and cared about him, right? And the capstone, he's written one well, two books, but one that's the capstone of his ministry, and it's, uh, it's called Lamentations. Would his resume be sufficient for us to hire that man? Well, that man is Jeremiah, for those of you who've figured it out, who the Lord thought was plenty sufficient to be included among some of the longest texts in all of Scripture and one of the most important stories. Jesus only traveled around about a one-by-one-mile square in his day, and he said that everybody who came after him would do way more than he did, as it turned out. And if we just had Jesus' resume, three short years, two different jobs, I don't know that we would hire him either if we weren't careful. And even more important... How does your view of a leader change based on your relationship with that leader? Think of it, the leaders that you really have a lot of respect for and that you like, most often you have some form of a relationship with, right? Now, leaders of certain size organizations can't be equally friends with everybody. That's just the law of average. That's just math. You, you can't like I said, spend time equally to everybody. It changes based on circumstance. There are seasons in which you can uh, get closer to a leader, and there are seasons in which they have to move on and serve in other places. Uh, part of this is kind of maximizing and sending, which is what the, we would hope the church would be able to do. But do notice that really probably one of the things that affects most what you think about a leader is actually relationship, even above success. Now, that matters. So what actually makes for a successful leader if that's the case? Well, to quote Robbie from last week, love. Love actually makes for a successful leader, does it not? Someone who so cares about what they have been called to and to whom they have been called that they will sacrifice, that they will bear the brunt of shame, that they will take on the, the, the circumstances and take responsibility for what goes on, as opposed to blaming everybody else around them for being insufficient for their genius. And so we need to be careful that one of the main ways in which we judge leaders and think about leaders is not patently unbiblical and completely worldly. I was reading a biography of, uh, um, <laughs> it just escaped me, Benjamin Franklin. <laughs> I'm almost 50, by the way. <laughs> I almost said Aretha Franklin. <laughs> Two very different people in the scope of American history. 
Benjamin Franklin wanted, in the original Constitution, he wanted it to be such that if a leader for in any circumstance was deposed, could never, ever, ever again in their life serve in public office. And this is what he said. It's very interesting. He said, for so many people, they think that the, this public service is you are, you are actually moving up. No, for you to never have to serve again is to actually be elevated. You are now being returned to the ones who are being served. You have actually been granted a higher status by being removed in totem. That's an interesting way to think about it. Too bad it hadn't stuck. It didn't make it in the Constitution after all. But think about us, how often we want someone who's successful. And how do we judge a successful church leader? Well, we'll bring that up a little bit later in the service. Let's turn back to the text. Now, as we turn to the text, there's an important thing that we need to do with our imagination. And this is very important to the book of Micah. Now, the entire book of Micah essentially is set as a courtroom drama but not exactly like law and order, so you can't necessarily imagine an American courtroom. It would have been a different kind of circumstance. Both judge and primary plaintiff would have been God. Remember, he's the one who showed up in chapter 1 and said, hey, you gather, I've got something to say to you. And Micah serves as a prosecutorial prophet. He is the one prosecuting the word of God against the defendants, the people. Who are uh, uh, maligning the poor? Other plaintiffs would have been the poor, the orphan, the widow. And so, in this setting, he would have cordoned off the civic leaders, which you've got to remember, they were a, a theocracy, and so the civic leaders were supposed to be chosen by God. It wasn't a popular vote. It wasn't something that was up to their competency. It had everything to do with, did God choose them for that purpose? Because... Their function should have been representing God to the people. And then he set aside all the religious folks, the priests, the prophets, off to another side. And they were the ones that represented the people back to God. So this twin function is very important. And then you would have had the rest of the people in the middle. Right? Last week, chapter 2, was everybody in the middle, the people. If you remember, he took them to task for being greedy. He took them to task for telling the preachers, hey, don't preach stuff that makes us feel bad, okay? I only want to feel good about myself, so only tell me about grace. Don't tell me about repentance and sin and the need for Jesus. Just tell me why I get him and what are the benefits. So that was last week. This week, the prosecutorial prophet Mike is now going to turn to the civic leaders. And notice how he addresses them. First, he says, and now think about this for a second. Who is Micah to call to account the people who are in charge who bear the sword? Well, he's a faithful man who loves both the civic leaders. Remember, to call somebody to repentance, to confront them with their sin is an act of love that not many of us are willing to do. We just aren't. It is a costly thing to do because oftentimes the person cannot bear the weight of what they've done, so they have to, in some form or fashion, put it on you who confronted them. I've seen it happen many times. So he turns to them first. He says, Hear, you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, and notice the plumb line that he sets. Is it not for you to know justice? 
Now, there's something about justice that I think we need to, to make sure we understand and get right. We need to understand that justice in the mouth of God is not ideological. It's not ideological, it's relational. All the justice that, that God wants to see happen is relational. So it's not just that the poor have what they need, it's that they are welcome at the table. Right? So something I think that we, we frequently get wrong, and I've served in this for quite a number of years, is that we are, are crazy ideological. And we are fine making sure other people have what they need, but it's a whole different matter as to whether or not they are welcome at our table or in our church. Because sometimes people don't, they don't know the rules. They don't know how to behave. They don't know how to act right in a service. Sometimes they yell, amen. Have you seen it? Have you heard of such? Sometimes they have the audacity to lift a hand past their hip or ask a question. Or question. And so it's incumbent upon us that when we hear the word justice, that we begin to think in terms of love and relationship, which means fullness of restoration, not partial restoration. It is a welcome, it is a hospitable reality. Now, how can I say this? Did God's justice fall on Jesus? Yes. And what did that broker for us? Did that then set us free to live merry lives apart from God, never to have to worry about his fearsome, holy, consuming fire ever again? No, it brought us into relationship with him. It made it to where we can boldly come before the throne of grace. So a just civic leader would have been involved with the people. In fact, he'd have been involved with the poorest of the poor. Remember David's example with Mephibosheth, one of my favorite stories. Remember Mephibosheth, who was crippled in feet, and, and, and David not only said, will you be welcome, what did he say? Your entire lineage is welcome at my table. You are never to depart from the king's table. Is that the kind of justice that we are pursuing in full? Or are we just trying to make sure, hey, these people have what they need over here, and you stay over there? So he goes on to say, and notice he talks in terms of commodity. This shows up over and over and over again. If there's a litmus test that you could learn to apply to various circumstances, it's the relational versus the commodify. Notice how these leaders treat the people. You hate the good and love the evil who tear the skin from off my people. Now, are they literally cannibals, do you think? No, that's not what was going on. But essentially, it was you take everything from them that is their dignity. To talk this way is, is these leaders are allowing the very image of God to be robbed from these people functionally in society. Now, he can't take, she can't take away the image of God ultimately, right? But you can functionally so destroy, so beat down, so render meaningless another person that they can't see it, nor can anyone else. And so here they are consuming the people 
in a commodified exchange for their own good. They have no relationship with them other than to use them. Is that a successful leader? But wait a minute. Do remember, this is occurring in one of the most economic boons in Israel's history, in Judah's history. They are doing some of the best they've ever done economically. If you read the paper, right, people had houses, people had summer houses. People had couches, and then they had couches to lounge on once they were done with the other couches. They had everything they could possibly want, and times were good. It, it was peace. Is peace not success? Isn't that all we want? For everything just to be okay, no matter what it costs someone else? So here's where we got to be careful. I think sometimes we call success what works for one group, or maybe a couple, but does it for everybody. Think of how that's not relational. And that turns others who don't quite have what they need, who are in some way, shape, or form uh, being commodified or consumed or the image of God being diminished in, that ain't okay. Even if we say, this seems pretty peaceful for us. And so, as Robbie pointed out last week and many commentators point out, God gives a just judgment. So here, Micah, who's talking to the civic leaders, and you can understand this is risky business. This is what he says to them. So the they here that he's talking to, he now has turned from the civic leaders to you, the crowd, and he's saying, they, they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. When are they going to cry to the Lord? Well, when the Assyrians, who we've already been warned about, sweep through the geography, as we heard in chapter 1, and take over everything. There will be no more peace. There will be no more prosperity. There will be only slaves and broken and dying people. And so the leaders who are supposed to represent God to the people, who have failed to do that in a commodified way, failed to relate to the people as fellow image bearers, as fellow worthies of dignity, they will cry out to the Lord in their time of need and he will turn away. He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. That needs to cause us to pause a bit and think more about what just leadership, just servant leadership looks like and what it means. And then he turns to the other crowd, which I'm part of. So it's not just about other folks. This includes me. He turns to the religious folk, the prophets in particular. He says, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray. Remember, the prophets are to represent the people back to God. And instead of them leading them to God, they're leading them away from God. And they do it in a commodified way. Notice relationship is absent. Well, with the exception of where it's beneficial. It's commodified. If you pay me, you keep me well fed, you make sure I've got chicken wings whenever I need them, I'll tell you what you want to hear. Isn't that a good deal? Well, not so much right now. Chicken wings are about $2 a wing. Government needs to do something. Somebody got to step in. This ain't right. This ain't right. Judgment is in the land. 
And so, so they, if you, if you made sure I was well-fed, I'd make sure you were comforted. Does this ever happen in a church? Do we ever get a little nervous when the, some of the chief tithers start to rattle their sabers and say, we ain't putting up with this junk no more and we're going to vote with our checkbook? You got to back off of saying that kind of stuff. You can't do the minor prophets at Christmas no more, Cameron. I got 11 more. <laughs> 11 more. We won't do it every year. I, I can't take it. But think about how we, at times, allow this to be true. And it goes on to say he makes war with those who don't make sure he's well fed. And notice the just judgment that comes. Therefore, it shall be night to you without vision. See, you thought you could control the game. You thought you could keep it going. But the Lord steps in and shuts all that down. And notice who it begins to, who turns on who here? Here they've been, the prophets have been working the people, right? Using them as a commodity to make sure they're well fed. Well, who turns on the prophets and the seers and the diviners? The people do. It says they're going to turn on them. And they're going to be put to shame. They're going to be disgraced. And they'll cover their lips for there is no answer from God. So see, we don't control the game. And we're seeing this, right? Robbie Zacharias, Mars Hill, Bill Hybels. I could go on and on and on. It's not to throw stones at them. This we must learn from. Notice in every one of those stories, there was one current that was constant. Yeah, I knew some weird stuff was going on, but look at all the good they were doing. As if this doesn't undo much of that good in the eyes of the public and the people in society. If it doesn't de-church folks, it's just... it's. it's mind-boggling, listening to the rise and fall of Mars Hill. I actually wept. It wasn't just because the last episode was two and a half hours. There were just things in it that were just grievous to me as a pastor. And also very confronting, like humbling, and made me just weep for my own sin at times. How I've judged myself, my own success, by how many chairs are full. What are the numbers this week? What, what, what are the ties? What's, what money is coming in? As if that's the primary indicator of whether or not the Lord is at work and we are being faithful to what he has called us. But notice God's grace here. This is beautiful. He, he, he does this all throughout Micah. He makes sure that, that we know he will maintain a faithful remnant and part of that remnant will be one of his prophets. Notice this ain't just Micah flexing or boasting This is him speaking truth that is costly. He says, but as for me, I am filled with power and with the spirit of the Lord and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. The Lord is so gracious to continue to confront us with what separates us from him. The Lord is so gracious to remind us that we are not God, we don't ever get to be God, and that he is God. So he doesn't ever let us go all the way under, because we are his people. Now that should humble us, not cause us to say what ultimately the leaders were saying, which is what we get into next. 
Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who detest justice, who make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. That arrogant statement is insanely destructive. It was insanely destructive, as I mentioned, at Mars Hill. It was insanely destructive for RZIM Ministries. It was insanely destructive for Willow Creek. And, and I need you, what I'm about to say next, you're gonna, you're gonna, the dime's going to drop, and you're, some of you are going to get angry. I need you to hang with me for a second. Hear me all the way out. Anything you don't quite hear rightly, come talk to me. But this is the danger that is in that first group, the civic leaders. Christian nationalism. Hold it. Now, here's the problem with much of how we have viewed who we are in America. Isn't that an arrogant thing? I just read a biography of Ben Franklin, maybe Aretha Franklin, I don't know. But here's the thing. Let me, let me qualify first. To whom much is given, much is required. So if you are one of those, like most of us probably ought be, who think, hey, we were born into one of the greatest nations in the world. Much has been given to you, and much will be required. This idea of manifest destiny, that what we have, think about this for a second, would never run out based on what? How awesome we are. You know, we did beat the British with the help of the Spanish and the French. And we do have a lot. Do not get me wrong. We've sent a ton of missionaries around the world. The church has been able to do amazing things in this land. Don't get me wrong. I love living here. I can get chicken wings anytime I want. There's freedoms that are great. Don't get me wrong. But see, here's where we we got to be careful. Did we deserve any of that? Did we and have we used it for the benefit of every image bearer? Well, there's some problems going on image bearing wise across our land, even in our own community. In our spheres of influence, are there some people who wonder whether or not they're welcome at our table or this church or at our Christmas party? See, I don't, I'm not saying America is not great. Don't hear me say that. She's flawed. Some real problems throughout, right? Our history. Got some stuff we need to deal with. For the Lord to give that to us was not because we deserved it, but so that we would use it for his glory. And it's been a mixed bag. And so we need to be careful that we don't identify something that has no business being yoked together. We are citizens of a far country, not this one. 
We are temporary citizens of this one. We should use our citizenship here well, but always with an eye toward our real citizenship in the far country. We should always glorify God with the freedoms we've been given, with the the resources we've been given, with the good that we have. And it should always be relational to be truly just, not ideological, right, but real. And so too often I think that we've had this attitude that nothing, nothing can shake us. Oh, 2020, anyone? 2021, which is almost over, anyone? We are shook, and rightfully so. As we've said at the office, all that 2020 and 2021 have done has exposed who we really are, what we've been preparing or becoming in maturation, right? So like I say all the time, what you, what you, uh, your prayer life and your Bible reading devotion now is setting you up for whatever's coming a year from now. You don't get to catch up in the curve as much as you would like to think you do. And so this is why we must be faithful as our primary means of success. That's why the the judgment of us is love. As we say all the time here, the world will know who we are by the love we have for one another. And the fruit of the Spirit is just love in every manifestation. 1 John says God is love, and love ain't cheap. And it doesn't overlook everything, and it doesn't just, uh, just wave around and give away everything. It does so relationally, recognizing what is best for you. What is best for us? God knows what is best, which is why he gives us Jesus. Which is why really, think about, we sang Emmanuel, God with us. And it's not that he is not with them. He is. In fact, he's standing in their midst as plaintiff and judge. But they thought he was just some benevolent granddaddy who was doling out money all the time and and would bless anything they did because of their birthright. But when we get to Romans 9, we're going to see, yet again, that just ain't true. They were given a responsibility to live out the Abrahamic covenants. They were given a responsibility to care for the poor and the widow and the orphan. They were given a responsibility to make sure that anybody, stranger who passed through, was welcome at their table. Is that us? It needs to be. And so this is why it is important for us to remember that Advent is about God's hospitality that he would put on flesh and come to us who needed him so desperately, who had been resourced with so much but couldn't figure out how to use it without killing each other or themselves. And so Jesus comes to us as God's hospitality, and he is the prophet, priest, and king par excellence because to four Nobody human had been able to do what he could do. And so that's why it's critical that we not forget this is what this season is about. And that our celebration is founded in Christ. That it is about Christ. That it is hospitable and relational and just in Christ. 
And so, there is more grace coming. Chapters 4 and 5 in Micah are the pinnacle. And we're going to hear of the shepherd who is going to come. And who is going to rule and lead us in peace. Quite differently than what these folks are claiming. Listen to what Leslie Allen says about this passage. He says, Micah's words, remembered for their shocking severity a hundred years later, deserve to be taken to heart by each generation of God's people. They challenge every attempt to misuse the service of God for one's own glory and profit. They are a dire warning against the complacency that can take God's love and reject his lordship. Did you hear that? For how many of us is Jesus just not Lord? They are a dire warning against this complacency. They are a passionate plea for consistency between creed and conduct. The Lord is content with nothing else. So how are you encouraging the leaders who currently serve you for God's glory and your growth in Christ? Let me help. The main way you need to is be praying that we would be faithful. That we who have feet of clay, who are earthen vessels in which this glory is contained, who perish for you on your behalf on a regular basis, that we would stay to the task for the glory of Christ. All of us. Deacons, elders, staff members, anybody and everybody who's in those kinds of roles, that we would watch our life, watch our doctrine. That is success. And be careful about coming up to us when the room is full and we might be having to think about two services without a mandate. Might we be careful to recognize, "Eh, but are we being faithful? Be careful about only judging things based on do we have enough money to cover all the bills? Because you guys are generous. You've done amazing in, in your giving, and thank you. Let's be careful that those aren't the two numbers that matter the most to us. But what matters is how are we loving one another? How are we caring for one another? And recognize that love ain't always warm and fuzzy. And yes, I'm hedging my bets, being that I'm cuddly as a porcupine. But do encourage us. Because it is dangerous. Do encourage us in what matters most to Christ's likeness. Where you see us being unbiblical, would you in great grace approach us for the purpose of reconciliation and restoration, not a pound of flesh? That's too easy. You can have that. I got plenty of pounds of flesh to give away. Fit by 50. 800, I mean, 300 and something more days, and I'll be all right. But encourage us not in the ways of worldly success. And remember, we can't equally be every one of your friends. While we do want to be in relationship with you, and that is a critical aspect of this, there's only so much of us to go around. Which is why we have been blessed to have the number of people that we do. 
that you have access to and, and can get wisdom from. Praise be to God for all that he has given to us. May we use it. May we, may we honor him with all that he's given. May we be faithful and thus successful in glorifying him. So Micah 3, 1 through 12 teaches us that God's judgment calls the leaders chosen to serve his people to account according to his justice and love. It's really important. These leaders were chosen by him for his purpose. He is the plumb line. Another way of saying they're going to be judged by his justice and love is to say they'll be judged by, from Romans, his righteousness, which is his character. And would you join me, church, in making that what is most important to us as a church? That what you would say is, hey, I want to go to a church, where, whether it's this one or another one. It should be based on, is God at work in the leadership? Are they faithful? Are they successful? Not, is it exciting? It's great if it's exciting as well. And it's not always about your all of your felt needs, I get it, that matters, but be careful that, that you don't put yourself in a position to be treated as a commodity. Be careful that you don't put yourself in a position where you won't grow to look like Jesus. That should always be the goal. So if you would, join me in crying out to the Lord that that would be true of this church. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you come to your people. And we recognize that when you come, judgment is an aspect of your coming. And that judgment is one of the main means by which redemption comes to pass. And so may we not shrink away from this courtroom scene here in Micah. May we not shrink away from the ways in which you're confronting us with our greed and our selfishness and our commodification and our worldly views of success, and our idols that come in so many forms and fashions, and all the stuff we've got twisted and sideways. Lord, would you help us to see Jesus clearly? Your love for us clearly, even in these hard words. May we hear the voice of your just, mighty, and careful prophet. And Father, would you help us to treat others as you treat us with dignity and respect and true justice that they would be welcome at our table. May we show the kind of hospitality to others that you have shown us and be faithful in so doing and you be honored for the life of the world. In Christ's name, amen.